You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It's Sunday, January 14th. As you can probably tell by now, I'm not in the car. That's the squeaky chair. And I'm in the basement studio, and we're going to move on to part six, part six of my Four Cross Point series, a reviewing a sermon series, a complete sermon series of Cross Point City Church in Cartersville, Georgia, for the purpose of, I don't like to use this word because it's overused, of exposing, I'm going to use it anyway, the tactics of this multi-campus, seeker-sensitive church, even though the pastor says it's not seeker-sensitive. Coffee bar, rock show, and what some people would think is a good sermon. Uh, we're going through the entire series. This is part six. I'm sorry, it's taken me two years uh, to get this going. I've actually gone through and listened to all the sermons in the sermon series. Almost all of them. There's 16. And uh, we're moving on. This one is part six in the series, and it is called The Permanence of Love. And here we go. Appreciate Clay for sharing his story. And can we take just another moment and thank our worship team for leading us so well week in and week out. Yay for the worship team who plays Reckless Love and Bethel. I've said this often in the past, but I am so grateful to be in a church where we have such gifted and godly people leading us in worship. So you can't. And the men and women you see you on this can't platform see week it. after week, they James do this because they want to do it. Wearing a decent shirt uh, this, this truly week. Is their Behind James are two so blue around, LED spotlights them, uh, and a specially designed for them backdrop for, for this for so, us uh, series, this sort of a mosaic. And there's a lot of blue Holy it, Spirit lighting. Oh, James is going to the Bible fast today. Chapter for 13, we are continuing on today in a series called For Us. It's hard to mess and up. And if you're Christians just now 13. joining us for the series, over the last several weeks, we've been taking a deep sermon. dive into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And we've been talking about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and the importance of us using our gifts to serve and to build up God's church. Remember, and my contention past, is that this I entire sermon series really is an attempt to recruit. I'm going to pause him. This entire sermon series is an attempt to recruit volunteer labor because giant, well, it's not, it's not a mega church, not yet, but multi-campus coffee concert churches like this require tons of volunteer labor from the parking lot to the greeting hospitality. I think they call it a, is it guest experience or first impressions team? I forget what they call it. It's some offensive thing. Um, I don't think they call it hospitality if they do good for them. And then all the people to go carry around the music equipment and work on the production, etc., etc. So my contention is he's preaching on spiritual gifts, not through Corinthians, but just on spiritual just on spiritual gifts, and he's, he's using Corinthians as his biblical text. So here we go. I think he's about to talk about his background in the Southern Baptist Convention. He's always bad-mouthing the Southern Baptists that he grew up with or grew up in for not teaching him right about tongues. And by the way, if you look at the Baptist faith in Message 2000, it doesn't say anything about tongues. But I think, you know, maybe it was just his church. Anyway, 
Let's let him talk. Come up in conversation. It was always with a word of caution. Okay, in fact, I remember the first book I was ever given to read about the Holy Spirit, and it was full of warnings concerning the dangers of charismatic theology. And so for the longest time, I was that guy who thought of the Holy Spirit as the weird uncle who always shows up to the family gatherings and crashes the party. You know, he's always a little tipsy and his shirt's always half tucked in. And when he's around, you just get a little nervous because you never know what he's going to say or do or try to get other people to say or do. And so the best thing you can do is just not invite him to the party because if he shows up, things are probably getting weird. I just want to point this out. I have a Southern Baptist background too. I went to Southern Baptist Seminary, unlike James. And we were never taught to be afraid or wary of the Holy Spirit. We were always taught that the Holy Spirit is, is God. Yes, there's warnings against Pentecostalism because where I live, Georgia, Tennessee, the Church of God Cleveland Assembly is very strong, and there's a lot of charismatic influence around. And a lot of them preach that <clears throat> the proof of salvation is a second blessing of speaking in tongues or a second baptism of speaking in tongues. And there's, of course, warnings about that. So I just, I just want to say that his experience is a little different than mine. That's how I thought of the Holy Spirit. Like, I thought that if he showed up to family gatherings like this, things would get weird. By the way, they don't call their, apparently they don't call their church service a church service. They call it a family gathering, which is fine. The Bible says, do not forsake the gathering together of the saints. And that's what a Sunday morning church service is. It's a gathering of the saints. And yes, the local church is a family. Because you, you always saying when I was little, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Shake hands with everybody. I just want to point out the psychology of calling it a family gathering. So if you leave Tabernacle in town, you've left a church service. If you leave First Baptist in town, you've left a church service. If you leave Liberty Square in town, you've left a church service. If you leave Cross Point and don't go back, you've left the family gathering. You wouldn't, you wouldn't leave your family, would you? And he would do weird things. He would make people say and do weird things. And so the best thing we could do is just not invite him to the party. This is a strong Maybe man that's your because the Holy Spirit the Holy really Spirit doesn't today. do that. Right? As you think about the Trinity or the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, maybe your thought is God the Father, great. Jesus the Son, awesome. Holy Spirit, weird. And if that's you, I just want to set the record straight. Okay, here's the truth. People are weird, but the Holy Spirit's not weird. Well, amen, yeah, but that's church, sort of burning down a straw people, man. We can be a strange bunch at times, right? Church people are weird people, but the Holy Spirit isn't weird. And when the Holy Spirit shows up in the life of a church, what he produces isn't weirdness, but love. It's just what we talked about last week, that the evidence of the Spirit's presence is the presence of love. And so when he pays us a visit, if you will, um, it doesn't result in confusion or chaos or disorder or a lack of self-control. No, when the Holy Spirit of God shows up, things are so orderly and so controlled that people begin to deny themselves, to forget about themselves, to lose sight of themselves, and they then use the gifts that the Spirit has given them in love to serve other people. And that's Paul's big point here in chapter 13. You see, in this section of the book, Paul, he's dealing primarily with spiritual gifts. But in chapter 13, he takes this brief interlude. Okay, if you've ever been to a play, you get the concept of an interlude, right? 
Okay, because he's got to explain it to us like we're a bunch of idiots who don't understand what an interlude is. So now he's going to talk about how plays have interludes. I think I don't go to a lot of plays, um, but I think they're called intermission. Years ago, I was in New York City with my wife over Valentine's Day. We were actually on a trip with some students from the church where I was working at the time. And I decided to ditch the students and to surprise my wife with a play on Broadway. We went so wicked. Hey, don't worry, those students, they were in good hands. There were other leaders there. But we straight ditched them and we went. I, I remember we're watching the play and in the middle of the play, everything stopped. And the actors left the stage and they went he into something else. The audience, we left our a seats one and we minute all went and we did something else. Everybody took a anecdote. Break. And after the break was done, about going to Broadway, a Broadway play, play on a youth Paul's ministry here, trip okay? to explain 12, to us what an intermission is. We're not stupid. Or the body of Christ. And then in chapter 14, he's going to come back and he's going to oh, no, talk I'm about not. two gifts in particular, uh, gifts that really concern a lot of people, confuse a lot of people, prophecy and tongues. But here in the middle, he steps away from the action and he says to this church, we need to talk. Okay. I, I don't know if I would say that he's stepping away from the action as much as trying to emphasize that love is the greatest gift that the Holy Spirit gives us. And if you don't have love, everything else you got ain't worth nothing. So in the Corinthian church, people are holding up the people doing prophecy and, and tongue speaking as these great people, like more spiritually gifted than others, arguably, but the church doesn't demonstrate love among the body. So what Paul is doing is he's chastising, the letter's chastising the Corinthians, by the way. If he preached through the book, that would be apparent to everybody. You see, you don't have to sit here and explain things like interludes and you know what's going on if you just preach chapter by chapter through the book and get Paul's entire message. But when somebody just picks a couple of chapters, it's their message. You know, I want you to, I'm going to repeat that. When somebody just picks a couple of chapters for a sermon series on, on some subject, and I'm not talking about a one-shot sermon, but I'm talking about a series and somebody picks it like that, it's like you're losing context. And it's not that he hasn't filled in context here and there. It's just, that's what Paul's doing. And if you, if you just preach the whole book, that's clear. He's saying that love is to be held up as sort of the greatest ideal. And if somebody's a prophet, a prophet and a tongue speaker, yeah, that's great. But if they don't have love and the Corinthian church isn't demonstrating love, that doesn't matter. Because while the Corinthian church was a very gifted church, they weren't a very loving church. Um, in this church, there were certain gifts being elevated over and above other gifts. There were certain people being elevated over and above other people. Exactly. And so Paul, he just takes a break from By the, the way, I've listened to all these He just first. steps away for a moment and says, I, I want to show you a more excellent way, a better way than your way. And so he opens up chapter 13 by describing who we are without love. And he tells us we can be incredibly gifted people. We can have great gifts of speech, of knowledge, of prophecy, of faith. But if we don't love people, our gifts don't matter. They're not helping anyone. Yep. Yep. He even says we can be incredibly generous. We can give away all of our stuff, all of our money, all of our possessions. Of the previous we can even give up our lives for what we say we believe in. The but to his love. point, your generosity and your sacrifice doesn't matter if you don't love people. 
He then goes on and he gives us this beautiful description of what love does and doesn't do. You know, I joked last weekend and I told you these are the wedding verses, verses four through seven. Because if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard a pastor read these verses. Uh, confession, I am the cliche pastor who reads these verses at almost every wedding ceremony I do because they're so powerful. But what most people don't realize is that Paul didn't write these verses for weddings. He wrote these verses about the use of spiritual gifts. And here's what he teaches. To love someone means that you're patient with them and you're kind to them. So in other words, you give someone room to act, room to respond in a certain way. You'll either, even suffer with them over a long period of time if need be. That's what patience means. It means long suffering. In addition, you actively seek their good. That's what kindness means. That you see a need or a desire in someone else's life and you take it upon yourself to meet it. Furthermore, to love someone means that you aren't envious, you're not boastful, you're not arrogant, rude, self So remember what I said angered. a you couple of programs wrongs, ago. But you that I'm going through you don't this celebrate evil, but you and including celebrate the every sermon. And some of these no there's not going to be a lot to review or criticize. It's it hard to mess up God 1 Corinthians 13. Right, this is the supernatural, self-originating love of God that Paul describes. I'm not really criticizing this anything he's saying about love for the body or how important it is. It on he's right about all this. He's him, just telling you what the scripture says. God chooses to love you not because of you, but in spite of you. Yes. And that's really good news, isn't it? Because we all know the truth. There are many things about us that aren't very lovable. And if God's love for us was dependent upon us, we wouldn't be loved people. We would be neglected people. We would be ignored people. God chooses to love you. I just want to put, you wouldn't be neglected or ignored. You, The wrath would be upon you. I'm going to, I'm going to put this. God doesn't neglect or ignore anybody. He loves his people. And then he sets his wrath upon those sinners who are not his people. So when you look at Revelation at the end, of all things in the judgment, uh, that's not neglect or ignoring. That's God's justice sending people to hell. Okay, so let me just make that clear. It's the great news of the gospel that when you were at your absolute worst, dead in your sins and trespasses, hopeless and helpless in every way to save yourself, that God, the great God of the universe, actively sought your good he was kind to you i mean there you were running from him you weren't pursuing him you weren't looking for him and god came looking for you and he sent jesus christ his son into the world to do for you what you could never do on your own and then he was patient with you sacrificed his son for your sins god is and then the god just ultimate example of love and we should look for to I'm him and his example when we want to, to love others and so as you continue to rebel, to serve as God over your own life, the great God of the universe was patient, and then he began to draw you to himself, called you out by name, gave you the faith that you needed to believe in Jesus Christ. And when you exercised that faith in him, God canceled your record of debt, canceled your record of sin, nailed it to the cross of Jesus Christ, 
Every sin in your life, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. And God adopted you into his family as a loved son or as a loved daughter. And the expectation on your life now then is this. You love other people in the same way that God has loved you. That is really good preaching. And if you're just listening to this in the car or at home, you're going to, it's like, wow, what great preaching. I'm watching the video. You're not. So I hear all of, all of this biblical proclamation. I mean, everything about love, about what God did for us, about how he's forgiving and patient, and about how we're supposed to turn that love towards others and how we're adopted in the family. This is all great. But I see the dress, the dress up behind him. I see the blue lights on the wall. I see the mosaic backdrop. I see the LED spotlight. I wonder how much, I'm going to look up just right fast. How much LED spotlight for church. I wonder how much one of these costs. Well, not as much as I thought. Uh, here's one for $299. Oh, wow, an LED video wall for church is $21,000. So I'm going to say that the little church light, oh, here's an Amazon thing, church lighting. Let's see this. Okay, the ones, oh, the, okay, I think I found the ones that they have on the floor. They're called stage lights. Nice ones, cost $360. That's 5,000 lumens. And then they have, uh, I don't know, maybe the little Chinese special. Maybe we could get these off Timu. $77. I don't know. Somebody from the church would know. Let's guess that his, he's got a $300 LED blue spotlight on the stage. Like you're sitting here talking about love in the Bible, and it's, it's all good, but why is your stage so dressed up? Why do you have a production team? See, this is like, if I close my eyes, I hear the words, but if I open them, I see the show. I wish this was, I've said it before, a video podcast. I don't know how to do all that. Which means practically, listen, which means that you love people who haven't earned it. Mm-hmm. You love you didn't earn your love who from don't God. deserve it. You don't deserve your love from God. This means that you don't just love your friends, but you love your enemies. Even the Gentiles are good to those who are good to them. It means that you love people who are unlovable that you wouldn't otherwise choose to love. And you choose to love them in spite of how you feel about them, that they might experience the great love of God through you. And that brings us to our text for today. All right, all that was intro. So you're welcome for all that. Very good intro. Verse 8, this is where we're going to pick it up. Paul continues with this theme of love. And here's what he says. Love never ends. It never ends. It's always been, it will always be. Love is eternal in nature. It never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so Paul starts here with this simple statement, love never ends. Okay, gifts will end, but love never ends. And he, he points out three gifts in particular to make his point. He starts with his favorite, which was the gift of prophecy. This is the human report of a divine revelation. And then he mentions the two favorite gifts of the Corinthian church, the gift of tongues, 
which is the spirit-empowered ability to speak in a language you don't know, and then the gift of knowledge, which is when the Holy Here Spirit comes of God discloses information to Hold you on. about a person so that you can... Okay. Uh, my wife just got back from the grocery store, and I think my kids were coming down to put something in the deep freeze. Sorry for the interruption. I do not have my own studio and building. I'm in my house by the deep freeze. You can speak God's will or God's purpose into their life. And so here's Paul saying, there's coming a day when those gifts will pass away. They will cease to exist. And he says, when that happens, the partial or the imperfect will also pass away. Okay, we, we get this, but Paul points it out. He says, right now in this present time, we know in part and we prophesy in part. You and I, we don't possess all the knowledge or the information there is to possess. We don't possess all the revelation there is to possess. Uh, God has chosen to give us a certain amount of revelation in the pages of this book, but we don't know all there is to know about God. We don't know all there is to know about the ways of God. I mean, our finite little minds couldn't handle all the revelation that there is to possess. And so God has given us a portion of it. And so here's Paul going, listen, there's coming a day when the partial, the imperfect, it's going to pass away and it's going to pass away when these gifts pass away. So when does that happen? Think about this logically. I'm not trying to like spoil alert or anything, but when when Jesus comes back and we're all in the New Jerusalem, we won't need to prophesy and use tongues because we'll all be there together with God and we'll fully know. So until that time when we fully know, these gifts reveal things, but there'll be a time when something doesn't need to be revealed. Well, he says when the perfect comes. When the perfect comes. Now, that raises a giant question that we need to answer. What is the perfect? Okay, y'all are already answering it for me, okay? What is the perfect? And, and I agree with the answers that you guys just yelled out. But I do want to give you two other views because I want you to be aware. Of I'm going to tell you this. As far as a matter of church order, he's preaching about tongues in this series. And, you, you know, you're out of order if you're speaking tongues in church and nobody is interpreting. But you're out of order, too, if you're just calling things out i mean not like amen i mean amen you know that's fine um i'm not a big amen clap guy myself but the pastor is up there trying to teach people and people it's a rhetorical question and he's about to say well it's either the canon of scripture like the cessationists say or it's the second coming of christ you know in this you know when the perfect comes and people are answering for him like no they, they, they need to clean that up. ...of what people believe, okay? Uh, this is important because it determines timing. If we can figure out what or who the perfect is, then we can know with great clarity when the gifts will pass away. And so three views. Number one is church maturity. And so there are people who believe that once the church of Jesus Christ or even individual believers reach a certain level of maturity, that these gifts cease. And so the implication then would be this, that there are certain gifts of the Spirit that are only for immature believers or immature churches. Now, I have to say, I think that's a dangerous idea. I also have to say, and I haven't read all the commentaries on this, and he's probably read more than I have, but I think he's building up a straw man and burning it down. When we talk about church maturity, I think we're talking about the church is matured because it's not 50 years old anymore. 
Okay, so, or even less. So let's just Google, use the Google machine. When was first Corinthians written? And we know Google's never wrong. Um, this is saying 50. Uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica says 50 AD. Okay, that sounds okay with what I learned in seminary. 53 to 54 AD. So if Jesus died and ascended in 30 AD, we're talking about the church is 23 years old, right? Now the church is almost 2,000 years old. And we have scriptures, and we've developed practices upon those scriptures. So I don't, I don't think it's to say it's for immature believers or immature churches. I'd say the church as a whole has matured since 50 AD. Remember, when, when Corinthians was written, there were still living apostles. Paul was one. Paul was a living apostle. There are no living apostles anymore. So nobody is giving us direction with apostolic authority like Paul is. But the church has matured, and it doesn't need it, because I have to think if we needed it, God would just give us more apostles. So um, forgive me, but I think he's kind of strawmanning there. And I'm not saying I agree with that view. I'm just saying that seems like a strawman to me. I think it's an unbiblical idea. Um, I have a hard time believing that the Spirit of God would ever create division in God's church by giving gifts to certain people and not to other people. Oh, these gifts are for the immature, and these gifts are for the more... Oh, crap, I hit the wrong button. Oh, dang Believers. Sorry, I hit. I was trying to pause, and I hit fast forward. Let, let me, can I rewind a little bit? Let's let him say that again. That there are certain gifts of the Spirit that are only for immature believers or immature churches. Now, I have to say, I think that's a dangerous idea. I think it's an unbiblical idea. Um, I have a hard time believing that the Spirit of God would ever create division in God's church by giving gifts to certain people and not to other people. He just said, I have a hard time believing that the Spirit of God would cause division in church by giving gifts to some people but not other people. But we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. And I think he's preached on that earlier in the series. Again, let's go to the Google machine. There are various types of gifts, but the same Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, literally one chapter before. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts. In other words, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of, of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, and to another effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. So hold on a minute. So not everybody has the same gift. So some people do have some kinds of gifts, and some people don't. And isn't that the the problem that's going on in the book, that some people value some gifts greater than the other gifts are valued? So he's sitting here saying, I don't think God would give some people gifts and he wouldn't give them to the other people. That's literally what the book says in the chapter before. Maybe he's trying to say, I don't think God would give some people no spiritual gifts and some people would have them. I don't know. But... Like I said, I think this is a lot of straw manning. I don't think the idea is that God gave some people gifts but didn't give other people gifts. Because the Bible, I mean, first of all, the Bible says that. I think everybody, the idea is that everybody has a spiritual gift, but they're different. Oh, these gifts are for the immature and these gifts are for the more mature. I think that's a dangerous idea. It also ignores the primary purpose of spiritual gifts. The Spirit doesn't give gifts or withhold gifts as a sign of maturity. No, he gives spiritual gifts to every believer for the purpose of building up the church of God. But this is a view. View number two is the Bible. Uh, this is the. Did y'all grow up hunting? You had a small shotgun before you matured into a bigger one. Carrying on. View that I grew up with. My pastors and church leaders always taught us that in verse eight, the perfect was a reference to the completed canon of Scripture. And so now that we have this book, we don't need the gifts. This book is all sufficient. And to that, I would say yes and amen. This book is all sufficient to lead us into salvation, to lead us into lives of godliness. But the logic is this for some people. Since the book is all sufficient, the gifts aren't necessary. Since this book can do all the necessary work we need, the necessary work required, the supernatural gifts of the spirit, well, we don't need them any longer. And then view number three. By the way, view number two, and I know a lot of you who listen to my show regularly probably adhere to view number two. I've never bought that view as an argument for cessationism to say that the perfect is the canon. I think that's us recognizing years later, no, 100 years later, because when was the canon finished? Around 100 AD, that's when Revelation was done. And then I think that's recognize, us recognizing that the apostolic witness is gone and the canon is complete. And we're saying, well, now the perfect has come. And we're saying, that's what Paul means by the perfect, the canon. But how would they have known what that is? They wouldn't, the original readers would have had to have some understanding of that. And they were still in the apostolic age. I don't think a, a, a New Testament canon was something they even thought of. They had an Old Testament canon. But obviously the canon was open back then. But I don't know that the, those guys were thinking like, oh, the canon is open right now. So I think it's a really, I think it's a really weak argument. 
And I don't believe that it supports the secessionist case very well. I wouldn't make it. So I agree with him that it's not a good argument. Number three, which is what many of you screamed at me, and I agree with you, Christ. I believe that what Paul's referring to here in verse 8 when he talks about the perfect is Jesus Christ himself. That Paul is teaching that when Christ comes, when the perfect one comes, the impartial will pass, or the imperfect will pass, the partial will pass, all things will be restored, all things will be made new, and you and I won't need the gifts any longer. And so the gifts will cease. I'm convinced this is the view we should take because of where Paul goes next in the text. It makes okay, sense contextually. He uses two analogies to compare and contrast what is true right now in the present with what will one day be true in the future. And he starts by comparing childhood with adulthood. And his point is really simple. He's just saying kids and adults are different. At least they should be. Amen. Like, and by the way, for those of you who grew up in church and you had pastors and leaders rail on you using this verse, telling you it's time to grow up. Paul talked about it. Reason, thought, spoke like a child. And then he gave up childish ways when he became a man. Hey, it's time for you to become a man, grown woman, grow up. This verse has nothing to do with growing up. I remember I call those preacher so punches. That That's what he's talking about. Preacher punches. Checking the Bible and taking this verse out of context it has nothing to do with growing up. It has everything to do with the simple point: kids and adults are different. Um, there is behavior that is appropriate for a child that would. I gotta stop it real quick. Do you notice how he's always talking about church people, church people, church people? You're in a church, dude. Isn't everybody church people? It's very intentional, and I think he knows that he's attracting people to his church who are one church people who didn't like church growing up and rejected or looking for something different, but still need to know they still know they needed to go to church. And people who have never been to church before, which is great that people who have never been to church before are going to go to a church and hear the gospel. I wish it wasn't this one. But why is that the target market, if you will, of his church? People who had a bad experience in church growing up, and people who've never been to church at all. And he's always talking about, hey, church people, hey, church people. It's almost like breaking the fourth wall. Like, yeah, we, you're in a church. Stop talking to the quote-unquote church people. Would never be appropriate for an adult. Example, uh, you see a child throwing a temper tantrum in a grocery store. You're probably going to look past that. No big deal. Where's the parent? All right, they got it under control. You see a grown person throwing a temper tantrum in a grocery store, you're calling the cops. Like, we need you to get down here. Aisle seven, dudes kicking over displays and throwing mayonnaise jars. Like, her. I have to say this. I, was, I saw him in the grocery store once and I was mean to him. And I had to write him an email and ask him to forgive me. I was on the phone with my friend at the Ingalls in Cartersville, which is really close to my house. And I guess it's close to him. It's really close to Crosspoint. And we were talking about some other church, some other thing, and something bad that happened at church that was bad. And I said, speaking of terrible, there's there's the pastor at Crosspoint. And it just like just bubbled up. That's not loving to your neighbor. Because I, I don't make any bones about how I think how I feel about Crosspoint. Um, but I had to write him an email and ask him to forgive me to say that it was wrong that I did that. Um, so I, I just want to say that that I was wrong. Because I was mean to him in the grocery store, and I shouldn't have been. And when you when you do that, people are going to look at stuff like this and think, "Well, he's not loving." So you got to be really careful. Don't be don't 
be mean in the grocery store if you're an adult. You see a child drinking milk from a sippy cup. No big deal. It's to be expected. You see a 40-year-old man drinking milk from a sippy cup. Uh, I mean, this is enough. Cause for concern, this right? Like, like, do us a favor right. and slap it out of his Are hand. you that's John Christ weird. with your little stand-up routine so again, for church th people? There's behavior that's appropriate for a child. But then when you grow up and become an adult, you leave that behavior behind. It's no longer appropriate. It's no longer necessary. This is Paul's logic concerning the gifts. He's saying, listen, the gifts are needed now. I don't think it's about They're behavior. They're necessary I think now. It's about They're appropriate now. And maturity and but reasoning. one day when the perfect comes, they won't be. See, he just did that whole aside, and it's funny. He made little jokes about it. Like, you would, you know, children throw temper tantrums in grocery stores all the time, but you would, as an adult, you'd, you'd think that was weird. Paul's not talking about behavior. Look at, look at what the text says. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. That's not throwing a tantrum in a grocery store. That's not speaking clearly. Like I got a two-year-old upstairs. It takes me like 10 times to figure out what she means. Think like a child. I just watched my five-year-old and my seven-year-old play chess. That's a different chess game than when I'm playing with my nine-year-old. Reason like a child. Children don't have the higher order reasoning skills that adults have. Okay? Like, think of like when a baby, you have a baby and you can play peekaboo with the baby and you hide something with the baby. They think the thing disappeared because they don't understand object permanence. He says, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. He's not talking about childish behavior. He's talking about immaturity. So think back to what James said about immaturity and maturity. That's why people um, made the argument, not only about the maturity of the church corporate over years, but maturity about individuals okay like because i was talking about the maturity of church corporate over over the years because like i said we're in, we're in the year 2023 not the year 53 oh my golly it's been a long time since paul wrote this um so just keep that in mind that that whole little stand-up spiel didn't have anything to do with paul's argument it was actually a, a bad analogy for it They'll cease to exist. We'll give them up because they'll no longer be needed. In analogy two, he compares looking in a mirror versus seeing someone face to face. And this was a brilliant move on Paul's part because the Corinthians were known for mirror making. Um, in fact, they manufactured some of the most popular bronze mirrors in the ancient world. And so when he talked about mirrors, they would have understood this. And I think we understand it too. If you've ever walked into a room and it was dimly lit or it was dark and you try to look like your mirror, sanctuary you know, when you sing with or your spotlight shower and the mirror is fogged over, you know, it's really hard to see. Dude, just explain that back then metals were mirror or mirrors were metal and not glass. So sometimes people read this verse and they think, well, I see really clearly in the mirror. Well, mirrors weren't glass back then. They were metal. And you could see a reflection, but uh, it was it was not as clear as, as it would have been if the mirror was glass. So when, as the King James puts it, you see in a glass darkly. It's kind of funny because it's not a glass. That's that's what they called mirrors back then, a glass darkly. You, you see in a, a mirror, a bronze mirror, a metal mirror, you, you see a dark image. It's not as clear as, as you do when you see it with your eyes. That's what Paul is saying. Paul's teaching here, that's what our spiritual vision is like right now, on this side of eternity. Okay, we see God, we just don't see him clearly. We see the ways of God and the mysteries of God, we just don't see those things clearly. This is another reason I am convinced that 
the perfect in verse 8 is not a reference to the Bible because even I agree with this that. book we don't see as clearly as we might want to see right prime example the series we're in I mean we're talking about topics in this series that people have been fighting about for almost 2,000 years and I've appreciated the fact that over the last several weeks, and I really do mean this from the bottom of my heart, that I've had people even in our church come and go, James, I don't know if you, if I agree with you on that. And I'm like, that's great. I don't agree with you either. Let's still love each other and be friends. There's no reason for this stuff to divide us because it's hard to see it all clear. Yes, there, there is. Because if people start prophesying and speaking in tongues in the church and people start interpreting the tongues and saying, this is what it means... You, if it's legit, you should follow that. If you don't think it's legit, you shouldn't listen. Well, how if it's actually whether let me let me back up on that because there's some people who think the Bible's not legit, but they still should listen to God's word. But what I'm saying is, you do need to come to an agreement on these things. There was discord in Corinth because they weren't in agreement. So this idea that oh I'm okay, you're okay. It's great for church growth, especially if you're the pastor and you're in charge and you just want that person who disagrees with you to sit in the sermon and be quiet and serve on your parking lot team. How would you feel if the preacher at your church preached a bunch of stuff you disagreed with about anything? Would you feel like you belong there? But no, the loving thing is to do to stay. I would think you'd want to find a body that you can come together with in one accord. And I know you can you can do an, a reductio ad absurdum on that to anything from the color of the carpet, you know, to the color of the ties the preacher wears, or people's haircuts, or how much makeup women should wear. You can get real legalistic about it. I'm talking about doctrine. I'm talking about the operation of the church. Clearly, there's certain things that even with this book is just hard to make sense of. Even with Bible in hand, our spiritual vision is limited. But when the perfect comes and we stand face to face, our vision will be limited no more. Praise God. And I want to try to paint this picture for you. Okay, this phrase that Paul uses here. Let me just make an argument he didn't. Paul is an apostle. He's literally giving the Corinthians scripture. Paul could have generated, in theory, as much scripture as he wanted to the Corinthian church. I mean, I don't know how that works. You know, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit has to be inspiring him, and when it's enough has been said, the Holy Spirit stops. But Paul's an apostle. He's speaking or writing here with apostolic authority, so the idea is like, well, hold on. The perfect will come when I'm done writing scriptures. Like, or what, when you're done with your letter? So the idea that, hold on, it, when, when scripture is done... You, you won't need these things anymore. He's literally giving them scripture. So that's just my insight. It has that anything to do with what James is talking Well, it does have something to do with what he's talking about. Face to face. It's highly important. You see it used all throughout the scriptures. And it takes me back to Exodus 33, where Moses was meeting with God and talking with God, and he made a request of God. He said, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see... Your glory. When I read that story this past week in preparation for today, it just got me thinking about us. Like, I, I wonder if God made an offer to us. Hey, I'll give you anything, one thing. What do you want if our response would be you? I just want more of you. 
want your glory. Like, would we want the giver even over and above his gifts? This is what Moses wanted. God, I just want you. I want to see your glory. And God says back to Moses, hey, bro, problem. You can't see my face. That is to say the fullness of his glory and live because you're a sinful man. And so he says, I'll make a deal. There's a rock over there. I want you to go stand on the rock and I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by and I'll let you see the back parts of me. Okay, there are many Bible scholars who believe that all Moses saw in this moment were shadows of God. And on this side of eternity, that's what we see. We see shadows of God. We see glimpses of God, but we don't see him clearly. Praise God, one day when we stand face to face with the perfect one, we will see him clearly. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. John, uh, 1 John 3, 1 through 3, this coming a day when Christ is returning and we're going to see him as he is. And when we see him, we're going to be made like him in every way. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, there's coming a day in the future when the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will be their God. They will be his people. This includes all of us if we know him. And God will personally wipe every tear from our eyes. I want you to think about this with me. And don't hear this as the church person. Like hear this and be amazed and be... Why would I not hear it as a church person? It's good to be a church person. Captivated and just wonder a little bit, if you will. If you know Christ, there's coming a day for you as an individual where you're going to stand face to face with him. Like you're going to lock eyes with the one who right now is wearing the scars that paid for your sins. You're going to see him. And in the moment that you see him, this is verse 12, Paul says, you're going to know him fully just as you've been fully known. It's fascinating to me to think that in this moment, God knows us fully, uh, directly, completely, unimpeded. Like there's nothing standing in the way of God's knowledge of you, which is why the grace of God is all the more amazing if you ask me. Like God knows you and he chose you. Um, I think about my own life. I know me. I probably wouldn't have chosen me because I know me, but God knows me and he chose me and he chooses to love me in spite of me. And in that moment, when you see Jesus Christ face to face, you're going to know him just as he's fully known you. And consequently, these supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit will cease to exist because we won't need them any longer. Let me just put some some framework around this for you. We won't need the gift of prophecy anymore. Because the God who gives revelation, we're going to be with him. Right. We won't need revelation from him. We're going to be in his very presence. That gift will cease to exist. The gift of tongues, we won't need it any longer. We won't need the spirit of God to empower people to speak in other languages because we're all going to speak one language. Yeah, we're all spread apart in battle and now we'll be back together. Isaiah 3, 9, that in eternity, God will change our speech to a pure speech and we will worship and call upon the name of the Lord with one accord. We're all going to understand one another. That's that's going to be awesome. We're not going to need the gift of knowledge any longer because all the knowledge and information that we could possibly want will be right there in front of us. But, but this, this logic, it transcends the gifts that Paul deals with, and it also applies to the other gifts. Think about this with me. Um, we won't need the gifts of miracles. That's right. Because everything will be as it should be. If you've ever read the Gospels and you've seen Jesus doing miracles, I know it's pretty fascinating to a lot of us. Oh, my gosh, it's so supernatural. It's out of the ordinary. Not really. Um, miracles aren't out of the ordinary events. 
Miracles are God bringing broken things back into working order. Like a miracle is simply when God takes what is broken in the world, in creation, in a person's life, and he makes it work as it's meant to work. I don't eternity, think the Red Sea was broken, because but okay. all things will be working as they're meant to work. The Red Sea was working as the, the sea is supposed to work. Because he every split evil it. spirit, every demon, Satan himself, will be in hell where they belong. Yes, they will. Amen. So never again. Never again will you have to wonder, is this the Holy Spirit or is this a different spirit? Kind of a of muted clap response to saying Satan's going to be in hell. Have been conquered by Jesus. We won't need yeah, I'll clap. Satan's gone. Because we're going to be healed. Fully, finally, forever. Like that disease that plagues you, that... That disability that you struggle with, that ailment that continues to just give you issues every day, that will be no more. In the moment you see Jesus Christ face to face, you will be healed. The gifts will end, but love will never end. Which leads to Paul's conclusion in verse 13. Look back at the text. He goes on and he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. When you study the New Testament scriptures, you find this triad, faith, hope, and love, talked about consistently together. Okay, in fact, in my studies, I found at least nine passages where these are talked about together. We're going to throw uh, some references on the screen. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. We're going to leave it up for a moment. If you're a picture taker, just snap a photo. I want you to go read these verses this week because they are incredible, incredible verses, and I want you to see this. But what these passages tell us is that in the early church, faith, hope, and love were seen to be a package deal. Like you didn't just exhibit faith, you didn't just exhibit hope, you didn't just exhibit love, you exhibited all three of these qualities, all three of these characteristics together. It was faith, hope, and love. And I would argue nothing's seven changed or eight for us today. scriptural references on the screen here. Followers of Jesus so Christ, statement. these three qualities are meant to mark our lives. Day in and day out. We're meant to be a people of faith. Not worldly faith, but biblical faith. And yes, there's a big difference between those. Uh, worldly faith is when you hope for the best without knowing what the future holds. It's just hopeful, wishful thinking. Hope things turn around. Hope things get better. Wish things were different. That's worldly faith. Biblical faith is hoping for the best because you know what the future holds. And you know what the future holds because you know who holds the future. And I know and your who heart holds and your soul is anchored in his character. And your heart and your soul is anchored there. in his word. And although you haven't seen him, you trust him because you've seen his faithfulness toward you as displayed in and through Jesus Christ. We're to be people of faith. We're to be people of hope. We're to be people of hope. So we're to live like we truly believe that we are on our way to a place that is better than where we are right now. So we're to be a future-oriented people. But we don't live like everybody else lives. We don't waste our days trying to make this world our home because we know this isn't home. This world and everything in it is passing away. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm on my way to see Jesus and to be with Jesus and to be made like Jesus. And when I'm finally with him, all things will be restored and I'll finally experience life in the way it's meant to be. We're to be people of hope. But then we're also to be people of love. Okay, 1 John 4, 8, the apostle writes that if anyone doesn't love, he doesn't know God because God is love. And then further down in the same passage, verse 20, he goes on and he says, some of us need this, just lean in. If anyone says that he loves God but hates his brother, he's a liar. 
because it's impossible to hate your brother whom you've seen and to love God whom you haven't seen. Straight out of the Bible. What's his point? If you're a believer in Christ, love should be the distinguishing mark of your life. You love people. Now he goes on at the end of this statement and he says to us. I just want to pause it again because I want to emphasize this. Because people are going to listen to these reviews and just think, man, that's hateful. I really want to emphasize that I'm doing this out of love for my neighbors because I truly don't think anybody should go to a place like this, despite the good sermons. Like this one and the last one, good sermons. Despite the good sermons, I, I, I really are just, I'm just troubled in my heart that this church is bestriding the narrow world like a colossus, at least where I live. Because now it's in Adairsville, now it's in Rome. And I've talked about the cross bridges of the world. By the way, like, I listened to a couple of the cross, or not cross, rock bridge, a couple of the rock bridge reviews I did uh, today because I was working on a website project. And, I, I mean, I joke around and I call, I called Matt Forstripe Adidas, Matt Chandler, but Matt Evans compared uh, as a preacher to this guy is like a double A baseball team mascot <laughs> compared to like a major league pitcher. I don't know. I don't know. Like I just, that's a knock on Matt Evans, by the way. He, Matt Evans just talks real fast. You can go listen to those, but not to chase a rabbit trail too far. What I'm doing here is I'm really, I'm doing it out of love for the body, the greater body of Christ. That out of this triad, there is one quality that stands out among the rest. There's one that is the greatest, and the greatest of these is what? It's love. Why is that? Why is love the greatest? Uh, I'll give you three answers, and I'll start here. God is love. Because God is love. Nowhere in the Bible do we read that God is faith. Nowhere in the Bible do we read that God is hope. He gives hope, but we don't see him as hope. What we do see, 1 John 4, is God being described as love. God is love. And so love gets at the very essence of who he is. Yeah, it's a part of his this nature. This is a defining quality of his nature. nature, of his character, which would seem to imply then that love is of a higher quality than even faith or hope. He's love. Number two, faith and hope depend upon love. All right, we see this to be true in, in chapter 13 in our text. Back in verse 2, Paul says that you can have faith to move mountains but not have love. Think about that. So it's, it's, it's possible, uh, according to Paul, to exercise faith without love, but what you can't do is exercise love without faith. The same is true for hope. Verse 7, love hopes all things. And so it it's might be a possible really to boring hope without sermon love, but what you can't do is love without hope. You see, love is There's the not much to contradict that binds here. this triad together. And then finally, and most importantly, only love is permanent. Only love is permanent. See, like these supernatural gifts, there is coming a day in the future when faith and hope, at least in their present forms, will cease to exist. And I want to try to unpack this for us, okay? I know in our culture, faith and fear are often talked about as enemies, as opposites. We've heard that a lot over the last 18 months or so, faith and fear, faith, everything's about faith and fear. Um, I would argue that faith and fear are not enemies. They're not opposites. And that it is entirely possible to walk in faith while being deathly afraid. 
It is entirely possible to be terrified out of your mind and to still trust God. We saw the truth of that in the very first series we did this year on the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a dude who was terrified of what God was doing in the world, yet he still trusted God. He's a man celebrated for his faith. Now, as I see it, the opposite of faith isn't fear, it's sight. Like if you're the person always saying, I need to see it before I believe it, you're not walking in faith. What you are exercising is the opposite or the enemy of faith. Second Corinthians 5, 7 is why Paul says that as followers of Christ, we walk by faith, not by sight. But I want you to think about this with me, okay? One day when the perfect comes and you're standing face to face with Jesus Christ, what will your faith be? It'll be, it'll be sight. You will see. Think about Everything what he said to Thomas. That you once had faith in. Those who the very believed person not that seen. your heart and soul was anchored in while you were in. He's going to be right there in front of you. His word to you that held you up, that gave you strength. His promises that pushed you forward in times of difficulty and in times of hardship. All of his promises to you will be fulfilled to you in that moment. Therefore, you won't need to exercise faith like you exercised it here because your faith will have been fulfilled. Listen, the same is true for hope. Yeah, you're not hoping when anymore. Comes and you stand face to face with him, because the perfect one. Nothing to hope for anymore. It's there. Hoping for right like, now. You're an Alabama fan. You win the national championship. Okay, think about this as followers anymore. of Christ. Let's just think about all the things that we hope for. Okay, we want our enemies to be defeated, spiritual enemies. That'll be done. We want sin and all of its consequences to be gone. We want death to go in its grave. Once I'll add gone. everybody we want to be you hope with those loved ones who that will be saved. We want well, not all of them are going to get saved, but everybody who's ever going to get for. saved will and be saved. Be There's no more the hoping for salvation. Who can accomplish all of those things people with Jesus. Okay, when you're with Jesus, that's reality. In that moment, when you see him... Enemies defeated, all things restored, all things made new. You're perfect in every way. Everything you hate about this world, it's gone forever. You're reunited with those people that went on before you. Everything that you've been hoping for is now your reality. It's been fulfilled. You don't need to hope like you hoped while you were here. But listen to me, love is different. Love is different. Okay, please catch this. When Christ comes yeah. and you're standing we'll face to face with loving him, each other. love won't end it will deepen you see in eternity you're going to know and experience love in ways that you never knew or experienced love while you were here you're going to understand it in in ways that was impossible to understand or comprehend while you were here for starters you're going to know the love of god perfectly never again throughout your entire existence will you doubt god's love for you never because you're going to look around and you're going to go, of course he loves me. Look where I am. I don't know. I'm another stop here. Not to criticize what he's saying, but this is a great message about faith and hope and love. And no background music is needed. You don't need the LED lights. You don't need the rock show beforehand. You don't need the soft piano playing that's going to start playing the keys when he when he gets to invitation or decision time. Just preaching the Bible is pretty effective. It almost preaches itself when you just give the message of the Bible because I mean, the Word of God is like a two-edged sword, sword cutting both bone and marrow. The Word of God doesn't re return to him void. 
Just listen to how powerful the Word of God all by itself is. Without any show, without any backdrop, without any stage lights, without any hillsong. And I didn't do this for me. Jesus did this for me. And he didn't do this because I earned it or because I deserved it. He did this for me because he's a good and gracious God. And this is his gift of love to me forever. You'll never doubt his love. Number two, you're going to love God perfectly. You will never sin again. You'll never be tempted to sin again. Like think about that sin in your life. I got one in my life. Think about that. I've got a few in my life. Think about that sin in your life that you hate, that makes you feel so guilty, so ashamed. You wish you could change it and it's still there rearing its ugly. That will never be a problem for you again. It will have been defeated and you'll never struggle in that way. All you'll do is honor God and worship God and obey God perfectly throughout eternity. And then furthermore, and finally, we're going to love each other perfectly. Our diversity will still be present because God loves diversity. But what will be absent is our division. How good is that? We're still going to be different. We're going to look different and talk differently. I, I believe our ethnicities and all of our cultures are going to be attacked diversity. and in play. But what will not be present is division, disunity, discord. There will be As people brothers there and sisters in all Jesus different races Christ, we will love one God. another perfectly throughout eternity. Love never ends. And in light of that incredible truth, I want to close by just asking one last question. What do we do with that now? While we're... I'm going to pause that and just think, when I think back to the Tower of Babel and how the people are all there together, let's just read the scripture. Tower of Babel. Man is... Genesis 11. Let's go down to Genesis 11. Back to Genesis 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed each that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Do you think that God ruined their city and their tower that they were building because he quote-unquote loves diversity? It's because the people were thinking about making a name for themselves rather than realize that they should just be worshiping God in the right way. So the reason we have, this, this is the reason in case you've ever wondered, 
while we have different languages and different cultures, some of whom fight one another and can't stand one another, God did it to these people. And it doesn't say because he loves diversity. It's because the humans weren't using their unity in a way that's holy to God. When the perfect comes, when we're with Jesus, as James has been talking about, because all our hopes are fulfilled, because our faith is fulfilled, and because we have love and we will know perfectly as we have been known, we won't do sinful things like they did in the land of Shinar. And it will be safe once again for us to have a uniform language and culture. So it sounds nice in a DEI world to say that God loves diversity, but I simply don't have any scriptural support for that. That's just a phrase some preacher used. Here, in the present, waiting on the perfect to come, knowing that gifts will end, but love will never end. What should our response be? Let me stop once again and say, the sin of ethnocentrism is thinking that your culture is better than the others. Your culture is just as fallen as all the other cultures. Now, I can say, well, hold on a minute. I'm not a cannibal. We don't worship animal spirits where I'm from. Well, yeah, that's because I live in a Christianized culture. It doesn't have anything to do with the color of my skin or that I speak English or anything like that. I just... I was lucky to be born in a prosperous place that had a lot of Christian heritage in it. We'll say that. But back before the witness of Christ, when you have, uh, what are the the three basic races? Caucasoid, Negroid, and Mongoloid, which would be the Caucasians, the white people, Negroid, the black people, like the Africans, and then Mongoloid, which would be the Asiatics, Okay. There's not one better than the other because of their skin culture or where they're from, even though there's all, all that diversity. Okay. So don't be ethnocentric in a sinful way. I want to give you two answers. Number one, permit every gift. Permit every gift. Okay, this is me speaking as a continuationist. And if you have no idea what that word means, continue washiness. Like, go back and watch week two of the series because I unpacked it in great detail. Um, but simply put, I am a guy that believes in the full range of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That every gift is still alive today, that every gift still functions today. Therefore, every gift should be prayed for and pursued and permitted. Um, while we have the gifts, we might as well use them. Amen. Let's say earnestly again, desire the gifts. going to pass away till Christ comes back, and so we need to permit them. Gift. Now, permitting every gift means that we use every gift rightly. First Corinthians fourteen. I know when I talk about permitting oh, hold gifts, on. some of y'all get real nervous. Hold on. Here comes the piano music. Here it's so stop. You're you're about to get emoted. We're thirty five minutes in, and. 
when it was just the word of God being preached, we didn't need any music. We didn't need the keys. But now that he's making his argument of application to emotionally manipulate you, here comes the keyboard lady. Because you're worried, like, ooh, what if people do weird things? We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that if we need to, okay? But stop letting fear drive you. You're afraid. And as as we get nervous, John, we man, I'm not afraid of the spiritual gifts. gifts be abused or misused, and so we just want to ban gifts, and we want to discard gifts, and I go, whoa, we... By the way, it's an abuse or a misuse of a gift to not be loving when you're doing it, like the Corinthians did. It's a misuse or abuse to speak in tongues but not have an interpreter. It's not a misuse or abuse to fake the gifts, which is what is done in the Azusa Street culture today. Post-Azusa Street revival, the gifts, the quote-unquote tongues that we have here where I live in the Church of God type places are fake. Fake. So I have with me here Senator Vreenak, if you'll forgive the interlude, from the Romulan Star Empire, uh, from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Senator Vreenak, what do you think of post-Azusa Street spiritual gifts? It's a fake. <laughs> I'm sorry. Every time, every time something's fake, I always remember that. That's from the episode in The Pale Moonlight, the best Star Trek episode of anything ever. But yes, it's a fake. It's fake. When I went to Liberty Square in Cartersville and the guy went, woo-loo-loo-loo-loo, it was fake. When the pastor slayed the teenage girls in the spirit and they laid down gyrating on the floor and they had to cover up their legs because they had dresses on, it was fake. So we can talk about what spiritual gifts are. But cessationists are not really afraid, if I can speak for them, about the abuse or misuse. They're afraid of it being fake. You can't do that. Because every gift, the Holy Spirit, is a good gift. If it's real and not fake. Like, we don't discard the Bible because people misuse the Bible. And people do it all the time. You see those Facebook preachers? See, this is another straw man. Apart, this is a straw man context, argument. And he needs the background keyboard music for his straw man argument. We don't, do go, we don't throw the Bible away because so misuse it. The Bible's the not fake. Hoopa dooba dooba, that's fake. Woo loo loo loo, that's fake. It's not the spiritual gift when you fake it. And so we need I to agree with that statement. Use every gift of the Spirit rightly, which is what we're going to spend time doing throughout the rest of the series. Um, when we get into chapter 14, we're going to talk about how to use two gifts rightly. And these are gifts that are really confusing and make people nervous, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. And so I want you to keep coming back for that. But we're going to get there. Answer number two. What do we do? We... I want you to keep coming back for that. Should people come back to church because they're interested in what's being talked about or because it's Sunday and they're a member of that church? Prioritize love. We prioritize love. Uh, one of the pastors on our staff this past week, Pastor Clay Willis, who is our Daresville campus pastor. Love all you Daresville folks. He, uh, he made a great love statement. Music I just love music here, but hate the price. Said, you know what? It is so much easier to use our gifts than it is to love people. And he's so right. 
Like it's a lot easier for me to get on this platform. Hold on a second. Let me. We're talking about love. I got some better emotion music. To hold doors and to hold babies and to lead your small group and to serve on the security team or in the parking lot or to give people coffee. And it is to walk alongside so much better than his keys. I hope I'm not breaking any copyright laws. All right, thank you, Van Morrison. I just thought I would I would enhance his emote time. Galatians five fourteen, the Apostle Paul says something very similar. The entire law is fulfilled in one word: you love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the point. Yes, good. You want to do what God requires of you? You want to fulfill every single command laid out in the pages of this book? What do you do? Prioritize. Boom. Love. Yes, good. You love God. By loving people. Some 200 years if ago. If you'd have play, played Van Morrison when you said this, you've got them all, James. And its, fruits. it's on the topic of Christian love. And he was wrestling with a question. Um, the question was, what makes the church like heaven? Do you know this is what he was pondering. that they what planned this? The like, the like piano lady knows love. when Why? she's supposed to hit the piano. Because it never ends. It's not natural. Because love is eternal. It's not like therefore, a reaction. Therefore, all of this production is time. Supernatural love of God that has been poured it's like, out all right, us, piano lady, when I say this, you hit the piano. We are giving people a taste of eternity. I'll close with this great quote from D.A. Carson. He writes about this reality. He says, The church's manifestation in time of the glories that are yet to come is not accomplished in the gift of tongues, nor even in prophecy, giving, or teaching. It is accomplished in love. One day, all the charismatics who know the Lord and all the non-charismatics who know the Lord will have nothing to fight over. Praise God. If I know the Lord, why doesn't the Holy Spirit give me the gobbledygook gift if the gobbledygook gift is real? At that point, both of these groups of believers will look back and thoughtfully contemplate the fact that what connects them with the world they left behind is not the gift of tongues nor animosity toward the gift of tongues, but the love they sometimes manage to display toward each other despite the gift of tongues. Despite the gift? And listen to this last line. He just said the he gift didn't cause division. that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the spirit has been poured out upon us, that we are citizens of a kingdom not yet consummated is Christian love. Okay, my hope and prayer for our church is simply this, that we would love people so well that when they engage us, when they interact with us, when they see us on social media or in the grocery stores, whatever it may be, that they get he was nice to be in the grocery store of eternity because they've ran into us. Because he wasn't like, for how dare you? Right now, across both locations, across our homes, if we can just bow in this moment, we want to pray, Father. We want to stop first and foremost. Here comes the podium guy. For your great love. Podium guy doesn't pray with him. And we acknowledge today that we don't deserve it. There's nothing we did to earn it. God, we celebrate your grace, your kindness toward us. And thank you for Jesus. We His right eye so ticks when he prays. Him. And we 
know that without him, we would be hopeless. Helpless. It'd be very distracting if I was there and my eyes were open during the prayer. God, our, our, our heart, our prayer, our hope is that you would continue to transform us into people who love like we've been loved. That we would hold nothing back. That we wouldn't love based on what people deserve. We wouldn't love based on what people have earned. We wouldn't love based on how we feel in a certain moment or on a certain day. But we would just choose to love because we've been loved. The Holy Spirit of God, would you do that work in us? We know that we can't do this on our own. We can't produce this kind of love through human effort or human mind. We know this is supernatural and this is something that you have to do on the inside of us so that it makes its way out of us. Help us to love so that heaven touches earth, so that people get a taste of eternity. That is our, our prayer today. God, as we sing, as we respond, we pray that you would continue to move among us, continue to pour out your presence in this place. God, just come and have your way. Pray it in Jesus' name. I bet what they didn't sing, life. have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Listen, like I said before, these last two sermon reviews, it's really hard to mess up 1 Corinthians 13. Those are two pretty good sermons. And I'm not going to put all the bad stuff there and criticize it and not include the good sermons. And I'm going to tell you that when I criticize Crosspoint to people, they say, no, James is a good preacher. James preaches biblical things. These two sermons are an example of that. They're an example, so we need to include them. But we need to be critical or observe uh, or observe the whole thing. So I'm, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this right now. Um, I don't know how long it'll be till I get to the next one. Hopefully not more than a week. I had two basketball games this week, so I had to review the game tape. Um, oh my gosh. The next sermon in this series, James goes on vacation to the beach, and it's like the music or quote-unquote production pastor. Just wait, because not good, not good. All right, thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again one day. As always, God bless, and as always, Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.